Welcome to a very special live studio audience edition of It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today on the podcast we are talking with Dan Pfeiffer. Now you podcasting nerds know him as one of the co-hosts of Pod Save America, but before that Dan had a pretty interesting job. He was President Obama's White House communications director. And now he's got a new number one best-selling book called Yes, We Still Can. It's kind of a memoir and kind of an idea about how Democrats can win back the White House and Congress. I sat down with him the other day at the San Francisco headquarters of the tech company Scribd before a live studio audience of a, a couple hundred people. We talked about what goes on backstage at Pod Save America, how they put together the show, how Fox News is a propaganda arm of the Republican Party, and what Democrats need to do to get back into power. Oh, and there is an It's All Political First live questions from the studio audience, and mercifully, no one dropped an F-bomb. Next on It's All Political. Welcome, everybody here, and uh, welcome, uh, Dan, to not only to script, but also to It's All Political. I'm, uh, excited, political to be, podcast. I'm excited to be in both places. <laughs> Um, the last time we saw each other was in the bowels of the Fox Theater in lovely Oakland, my my city, um, where, uh, where where rock bands, you know, they prepare, they they do whatever they do, lines of coke or whatever before a show. <laughs> I don't know where this is going. But. Yes, okay. <laughs> and uh, I was down there with the right before the Pod Save America crew was about to go on there, uh, where twenty eight hundred people were waiting to see you guys. Uh, tickets were being scalped for three times face value, <laughs> 130 bucks. So I mean, you've, I mean, you've reached the highest levels of political power. You know, uh, you know you've been in the White House and uh -huh. you travel with the president, but what is, what's, is there something special about walking on stage where you're the star, the co-star, <laughs> and almost like a rock star type of thing? I mean, what's, what's the difference between the, like sort of the rock star buzz that you walk out to there. It, I mean, the, we always think about this at the end of 2017. So the first year of Pod Save America, we all kind of looked at each other and we said, "It's been a really weird year." <laughs> it is, no doubt. I mean, it. Is, I mean, in, on on every level, apparently. But we are still surprised to this day, even when you have exciting days like at the Fox Theater in Oakland, or when we had a chance to, um, you know, we have an HBO show coming out in the fall, and so we were doing a panel uh, at the Television Critics Association in L.A. this week, and it's like Jane Fonda goes up, and then John Oliver goes up, and then the cast of Sharp Objects goes up, and then us four schlubs go up. <laughs> and, you know? and so, and that, like, but we're all, like, all of it, even, even at those moments where we are sort of, uh, it's surreal, and we're, we are appreciative of it, and we try to never take it for granted for two reasons. One, it is... Like there are two sort of competing, true at the same time narratives in America right now. There is it is a dark, dangerous time with an infantile toddler with a Twitter account in the White House, and horrible things are happening. And that is dark and depressing, and can cause even those of us who've been in politics a long time to crawl up in the fetal position under the desk. But at the same time, 
there is this wave of activism among young people who are smart and inspired and getting involved and using all of their skills in really incredible ways to try to make this country better. And because of Pod Save America and the and the touring we do, we get to see these people. We get to meet the kids from Parkland. We get to see the people who organize the Women's March. And that is the greatest gift we could ask for in this time is to get a chance to find hope among young people. I would say if someone were to come, like there's no question that our podcast success has something to do with the fact that Donald Trump is president. And if some sort of, I don't know, genie in a bottle were to come to us and say, would you trade your podcast (laughs) success for Hillary Clinton as president? We would do it in a second. (laughs) So tell us how you put together your, when you put together uh, the shows that you're on, with Favreau, how does that work? Do you does it? Uh, how much of that is uh, is struct- structured? How much of that is a riff? How did w- walk us through like a, a, the prep on that? The traditional way in which we do it is every way, so that we do we take the we record the podcast at nine a.m. on Thursday mornings. Uh, John's in L.A. I am in my apartment here in San Francisco, and come Wednesday morning, uh, I start to put together an outline based on what's in the news. And depending on my schedule that day, sometimes I do it early in the morning, sometimes I do it later. In ver- within five minutes of me finishing an outline, after having some like text conversations with John and some of our producers about what are the topics we want to hit, sometimes they're pretty obvious. Like, I don't know, you kind of want to hit the release of a tape of the president discussing a hush payment via secret <laughs> shell corporation. Like, that's a thing you're probably going to put on the agenda. Get, that'll be up to but top so, three. Yeah, so within uh, five minutes of sending the outline to John something happens and we have to redo it. And that's sort of the process. And then we, we wake up, uh, as many people do uh, in the Trump era, we wake up, grab our phones on Thursday morning pretty early, and, just, and then try to incorporate all the things that happened while we were sleeping and Trump was tweeting. And so it is sort of this like rolling process. If we have an outline, we have things we want to hit. And we try and sometimes and maybe often fail to not get distracted by the tweet of the moment. And like, like we know, like, like in the podcast that came out today, we interviewed Danny O'Connor, who is running in the uh, special election for a House seat in the Ohio District 12 that is a week from Tuesday. And like, we want to talk about that. We want that to be things we want people to know about. So regardless of what Trump tweets or what tapes gets released, we try to nail in on those things that we think are important to sort of separate the signal from the noise from people. But it, it can be a rollicking conversation. And sometimes, it, oftentimes the outline we don't get to items three and four in the outline because one and two take so long. Wow. So we're going to uh, talk for for a while, and then uh, we're going to turn over the questions uh, to you. So be thinking of stuff that you want to ask Dan, uh, and we'll, we'll get to those in, in a little bit. Because uh, we've we got so much to cover. The book, by the way, if you didn't know, is a number one bestseller. So that's it. Oh, th- thank you to all of our very awesome... Uh, Friends of the Pod who helped make that happen, and in doing so, helped uh, raise money for both uh, Swing Left and NARAL. So, now let's talk about the, the speaking of the news of the day. Let's talk about some things that I wanted to get your take on as a mm-hmm. former White House communications director. Someone you could appreciate. This week, we saw the White House uh, ban a CNN reporter, Caitlin Collins, from an event for shouting questions at the president during a photo spray. Now, for you know. For, 
for a quick explanation of what that is, uh, you know, it's like a photo op when the president, she was, uh, the president was there in the Oval Office with a couple of top advisors, and they usually send one reporter representing uh, all the television stations and sometimes one print reporter. <laughs> and since you can't jam the entire press pool into the Oval Office, one person's basically there to represent. And then they file a pool report that everyone else, uh, you know, uh, Takes, uses in whatever way they please. So Caitlin Collins was banned for asking some questions that were deemed offensive. Here are those questions. Did Michael Collins betray you, Mr. President? Mr. President, are you worried about what Michael Collins is about to say to the prosecutors? Are you worried about what, uh, about what is on the other tapes, Mr. President? And why is Vladimir Putin not accepting your invitation? Uh, those questions don't sound all that offensive they sound like the typical stuff you would do what is this what is this all about what is this saying what is the white house saying by banning collins well i would say and what could be done about it that that is the great question um this is pretty standard behavior no matter what the event is reporters will yell questions at the president everyone kind of understands that this is sort of happens. It's annoying sometimes. Sometimes it's very annoying. Um, but the president knows how to sort of either answer or not answer. Like they're a and they're an adult with free will, and they can decide if they want to they answer the question <laughs> or not. And like you know, you can hear the well, they're called the wranglers, who are the staffers who sort of move the press around, and they'll start just saying thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, press. We have to go now. Just sort of move move the process along. So when I saw this, I originally saw it as I see most things on Twitter and I saw the list of questions and I was like, and in full disclosure, I'm a CNN contributor. So I, I'm familiar with Caitlin Collins's work. I'm familiar with her. And so I was, I, the question, I like what questions, it seemed impossible to imagine that she asked inappropriate questions. So I looked at the questions and they're incredibly inappropriate. And so then I, but I only saw it written. And so I thought, well, I find this impossible to imagine because she's a very nice person, but maybe she did it in a way that was rude or in some way or louder than usual, or was she more disruptive than usual? And so I looked at the video and no, this was just as standard behavior as you can. And so the reason why I think they quote banned her is, I mean, they're just generally terrible. And the person who's now in charge of communications is a guy named Bill Shine, who used to work at Fox news until he was fired for uh, helping cover up a raft of sexual misconduct up and down the the ranks at Fox News. He was Roger Ailes' henchman. And he also was one of the people who helped turn Fox into a engine of racially divisive propaganda. So not a good dude is my guess. I've never met Bill Shine, but I have some suspicions about this. And so they they... They would not let her come to this event. And I also think they did this because this is the one, most of the time I view the things, when Trump does crazy things, a lot of people will be like, well, what's the strategy? And the the example I've used before is asking what the strategy behind what Trump does is a little like asking 
this, what's the strategy behind a monkey throwing feces at the wall, right? It's just, it's like what they do. And sorry if that was graphic, but you said feces. That yes. was good. When, when, was, I, when was, I say it on the pod, there's yeah. no one else yes. in the room, but when I say it in front of all these people, yeah. I have to look people in the eye <laughs> like, so I can get the reaction. It's, it's um, just you and your wife and your two year old or two month old. That's person. right. And, uh, but I think in this case, this is, there's actually a strategy to this. Trump generally likes when things aren't going well to pick a fight with the press because he, it's what he's very comfortable doing it. It is one thing that rallies the right wing base is to be against the press. And he also knows that there's no story the press likes to cover more than itself. Oh, yeah. So the outrage, the very legitimate outrage about this on Twitter that consumed the press for hours instead of talking about the tapes, the hush money, Putin, like the the most important story that there are thousands of children not yet reunited with their parents. And we're learning today they have there may never be because of the incompetence administration. So I do think this there might have been a strategy behind this particular move to, to destroy. This is a, a classic shiny object. Shiny. Move. Look over here. Yeah. 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 Uh, in your book, you cop to lying to the press once that you admitted to. Uh, uh, as, as White House communications director, it involves Cuba. Why don't you tell these guys how you lied to the American people? I think if you, I think a close textual reading would say that I admit to coming close to the line of lying (laughs) without, without crossing it. Um, so in the book, I talk about rules for communications directors. And I would note that I had to rewrite this, I had to edit this chapter five times to account for all the hiring and firing of the Trump communications directors. And Hope Hicks, God bless her soul, uh, resigned just in time for me to get it in like minutes before the final deadline was due. So, so her decision to leave the White House and spend more time with the grand jury is accounted for in this book. Very nice. Um, and so in 2014, and one of the things that I, I talk about there is the rule that that communications folks from both the Obama, from the Clinton White House, the Bush White House, people who have been in, uh, worked in White House before told me is never lie. Like you can spin, you can not answer questions, you can refer, refuse to confirm or deny, but don't lie because once you do that as a spokesperson, you, you're no longer useful to the president. The press won't trust you. And, for, and that matters beyond just like you're trying to convince people that oh, the Obamacare is good is that when you're in the White House, you sometimes have to go out and say, talk really important governmental information that matters to people beyond the people who voted for you. Like when we were in the white house in 2009, there was a swine flu epidemic and we had to use all of, I was doing television interviews telling people to get the, get the flu vaccine to cough into their elbow and all these other things. And you, you need your credibility in moments like that, right? Even if people are going to doubt your re you're arguing about tax policy or healthcare policy. And so I, I felt like I abided by that. And I think most White House reporters who don't work at Fox would agree with that. Until towards the end of my tenure, uh, I was doing a roundtable with reporters after 2014 elections. And the point of the, uh, the roundtable was we had just gotten our butts kicked in the 2014 midterms. We had lost the Senate. And we were making a pivot towards more aggressive executive action. And I was trying to basically put lipstick on a pig that we had a plan for what was going to come next. And we like, like almost Obama would be freed by this new world we lived in. And I thought I was doing pretty well for myself. Like I was just cruising. I had answers. I've been doing this for a long time at this point, just like bat these things down and that, and talking about all these new things we're going to do in the final two years. Cause we had this sort of argument that it's the fourth quarter and important things happen in the fourth quarter. And so this is our fourth quarter strategy. 
final two years, quarters, everyone gets it. And um, then this reporter uh, from McClatchy, which covers Miami, asks, uh, basically, Dan, you're talking about things the president's going to do in the final two years, post-election. Post-election, will there be new outreach to Cuba? And that was a problem for me because I knew... Uh, at the at that exact time, we were in the middle of the incredibly highly classified negotiations with the Cuban government to renew diplomatic relations, and it was all centered around. There was an American named Alan Gross who had been in, accused of espionage by the Cubans, and he'd been in prison for a long time, and was in very declining health. And in the con, we would have these meetings in the Situation Room with like the tightest, closest group of the president's advisors talking about this. And one of the big fears in the meeting I had been in just like a week or two prior to this was we're getting close, but at, but Alan Gross's health is declining. And the Cubans are very sensitive because they have politics around this too, just like us. And if this were to leak before the deal is all done, the Cubans will probably walk away from the table. The Cubans walk away from the table, from the table. Alan Gross who needs medical care will probably die in a Cuban prison. And so in my head, as I'm, I get this question is, how do I answer this to avoid lying? Uh, how do I answer it without lying, but without also creating a media frenzy that would lead to all of the, because the press had no idea we were doing this. Because the normal way you would answer this question if there were not lives at stake and classified information, which I would note is illegal to disclose. We also didn't want to go to jail in this process. And was you would be very coy about it, but everyone would know. You'd be like, I have nothing new to announce now. For those yeah. of you in the audio medium, yeah. that's a wink. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, no, I'm not going to make any news here yeah, today. Yeah, or I'm not going to make, make any, any news today, or I le- I'll leave these announcements to the president. Yeah. And then everyone is like, oh, something's happening, and we're going expe- to turn every reporter we have onto this and start reporting on it. And if that were to happen, it would come out. These things always do, because they even have sources in Cuba. And so I ended up answering the question. I started to answer it in that coy way panicked in the fear that a man's life's at stake here and an incredible, even if it, even if not incredibly important piece of diplomacy was at stake. And so the way I was able to, and we can argue whether I achieved this goal, but to tell myself I was not lying was the question was in the context of a post election new effort. And the election was, the effort was pre election. So I said, no, there is not something post-election. Oh, God. And so, look, look I, I knew, I came back from the breakfast, I went to the chief of staff, and Ben Rhodes, the deputy national security advisor, and I was like, this is what I had to do. And if we cut this deal, I'm going to be in big trouble, just FYI. And to my surprise, when this came out about six weeks later, I think, the reporters were nicer to me than I probably deserved, yeah. understanding the difficult situation I was in, and some of them were even willing to allow me to, uh, I was dancing on the head of a pin here, but they allowed me to have that dance. So, <laughs> so uh, you alluded to Fox News earlier. The, the Fox News is, should we say, one of, the, one of President Obama's biggest adversaries when you were <laughs> in office. Uh, you, you guys went through kind of a, you went back and forth on Fox. You tried to reach out to him. You had, him, you had Obama sit down with the Bill O'Reilly during, was it the, S- the Super Bowl? or, or uh, Well, he did it twice. He did it times. once during the campaign in 2008 right. and during the Republican convention. Right. Well, and then, seven but, on McCain's. Uh, then we did it during the Super Bowl uh, 
but that was not really our fault. Right, right. So, so you, but you uh, went back and forth on them, tried to reach out, and then, and then you went the other way, and you said, "We're going to try screw Fox. We're going to start shutting them out of stuff. We're not going to invite them. You know, if we have, we'll, we'll invite a small group of networks or what have you, we'll cut them out." And they love that, yeah, um, because that got they were then able to say we're we're the only people standing up against uh, obama and blah 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 and they were able to, to hold the ground then then you tried something called what you called strategic ambivalence <laughs> towards fox explain what that is and at the same time there's a dance that you uh, democrats have to reach fox viewers without going through fox how do you how do you sort of maintain the strategic ambivalence with Fox, you and, and Democrats mm. to come, and reach Fox viewers who you need to win. I think the, the most important lesson that we learned over time and I learned over time is that Fox is not a news organization in the traditional sense. They are a, they're a <clears throat> right-wing propaganda organization who is, whose job it is to push conservative messaging for profit and to drown out progressive messaging. They, that, that, that is, it turns out that it is good politics for their conservative benefactors, but it's also good business. They're and, the largest, largest audience in cable news yes, by far. Which is not a huge audience based on the no. entire population of the country, no. and it's very, very old and getting older. Um, <laughs> if I say it's slow, it sounds old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so... Uh, like what I, the reason we chose strategic ambivalence with Fox is they like we could theoretically have done to Fox what they what what Trump did to CNN and like we're going to ban them, but ultimately that doesn't do us any good. It's not even worth the energy in the fight. So we just sort of would basically you know we let them do their job. We would not get in the way of doing it. They have a First Amendment right to be terrible, and we'd let them do that. And not get worked up about it either. And like, I would never have Fox on my TV. Never. It would not be a thing. The lesson I have learned is the, is that you have to reach Fox viewers. Like there are some viewers of Fox we have to do. And it's not just the actual people who watch Fox. It's that Fox has a much larger cultural and political footprint than the actual viewership. I mean, millions of people download Pod Save America. More people download each episode of Pod Save America than watch 80% of the programs on Fox. Right? Oh, yeah. Your audience yeah. is about, what, 1, 1. 1.4 million people it's or 1.3 million? Give or take, that. sometimes more. Yeah. Uh, to, and, yeah. Uh, and, and, and Rachel Maddow maybe gets a million pe viewers yeah. a night. Uh, uh, O'Reilly was getting two, three million, yeah. I think. Uh, the, the other folks, but, but, the, but the, other, uh, the other commentators yeah. are a lot far, far smaller audience. And, but Fox. Has, Fox has a does something that I call ignorance by osmosis, which is it is a cult, it is a cultural footprint in lots of towns and communities in America. It is what is on television. It's on TV in the waiting room at the mechanic. It's in the at the doctor's office. It's on in the VFW hall. And what even if you were not one of the people who tune tune into Hannity, you are getting through osmosis everything that's being said. It is shaping the political conversation in that town. And so Democrats have to find ways to penetrate that filter bubble. I just do not think you do that by allowing yourself to be played by Fox. Like going on, some Democrats vehemently disagree with this. They are wrong. But you, if you're going on Fox, you're playing their game. You're, you are accepting the, the premise of their false identity as a, journal, as a journalism or, uh, entity. 
by saying, I'm going to do CNN and I'm going to do Fox. I think that it is a waste of time and energy. And then even if the, there are some individual interviewers at Fox, uh, like Chris Wallace, Brett Bearer, every once in a while, Chef Smith, who will give a Democrat a fair shot. But that's not how it plays out. What the audience of the individual interview is minuscule. What they did, what happens is the social team, the the other shows will clip whatever the most advantageous part of the interview is to Fox's narrative about Democrats and run that all the time. And it's really the social part of Fox that's most damaging. It is pumping that content into fa- the Facebook ecosystem that is real. what is really damaging. And so you are allowing yourselves to be used by them if you do it. I think the way you reach those viewers is you campaign in those areas, you do local press in those areas, and you do digital advertising and social targeting those people to get your message out because Fox will never be a legitimate way to do it. And Democrats just have to understand that, you know, we were talking, we talked on the podcast today about like, what do we do about Fox? Right. And the question isn't, uh, it isn't like what the original question was posed in during the podcast of what do the other media outlets do about Fox in the, in the lying that Fox is a stand in for all the Republican propaganda, whether it's Breitbart, daily caller, Sinclair, all of that. It's like, what do they do? That's the wrong question because that presumes that they are just a right leading version of the New York times and CNN. That's not what they are. Mm -hmm. The question is, what do we do? What do Democrats do? What do progressives do? How do we fight back against that? Because if CNN, uh, my colleagues there, or the New York Times, or San Francisco Chronicle, they are abiding by a set of rules that govern how they operate. Fox does not operate with those. So it is an f- unfair fight. It is, that is not what the contest is. The contest is between progressive messaging and people trying to drown out progressive messaging. And then for years, uh, the Democrats, progressive liberals, uh, have, have talked about creating a... a, a you know, liberal version of Fox. There's been attempts at it. It's failed. Air America tanked, as we know. Is crooked media something sort of the future of this? Crooked media being the parent company of Pod Save America. Um, I asked your when we were talking in the mm-hmm. in the basement of Fox, uh, the Fox Theater. Uh, <laughs> we were. Very, it's, would, a, it's a different Fox. That would be a that would be a news story. Yeah. Um, they they, so, don't, they don't know about Oakland and Fox. <laughs> no, no. Oh, they know about Libby Schaff. They know <laughs> about right, you. Yeah. Um, they uh, John Lovett, your one of your co-hosts, said um, there's not there's no one thing we we've we're doing that we haven't done before. <clears throat> we're doing podcasts. So there's been a lot of people doing podcasts. We're trying to be funny about politics. There's a lot of people trying to be funny about politics. I think what we're trying to do is a lot of things together to make us effective. So what are you trying to do with crooked media? There's the crooked seven. You're reaching out. You're getting involved in, 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 um, in, in races, raising money for them. Uh, uh, Favreau has his sort of documentary series going on now. What is crooked media and how does it fit into this new uh, media landscape? Is it? Uh, well, I think it, we are not journalists. We are not trying to be journalists in a traditional sense. We are not objective. We are. <laughs> it's true. We're not. We are very biased. And we're very you don't say. <laughs> it is true. We, and we're not trying to smuggle propaganda, propaganda in under the guise of journalism like Fox does, right? What we're trying to do is create content that is entertaining and engaging for the purpose of helping engage people in politics because the biggest divide in politics is not and the most important divide across is not between Republicans and Democrats. It's between people who are involved in politics and people who aren't. And we 
we are in a moment right now. And you know, you say all these things have been tried before and they failed. It may have been we weren't in the right moment. We are now in a moment in people's engagement in politics, young people's engagement in politics, ways in which you can create media and distribute it in ways that are cost-effective and efficient. And so we, this may be the right time, but ultimately we are doing this because we want to help make America better. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah, you saw where that was going. Yeah, I stopped like, myself. There's going to be a copyright uh, infringement yeah. suit there. But it, like, we want we want to engage people, right? Everything is for the purpose of activism. The questions that people ask us all the time, even before we started doing uh, Positive America. So it, after the in the run up to the election, I agreed to do a post election panel the day after the election here in San Francisco. And I, it was uh, <laughs> one of my friends who runs a PR firm here. He was organizing, and he said, would you do it? And I was like, of course I'll do it. How how easy could this be? I mean, it's going to be annoying because i got to fly back from D.C. on very little sleep after celebrating Hillary Clinton's win, but how hard could it be? <laughs> so election happens. I don't sleep. I actually, side note, Instead of sleeping, I wake up and write the outline that makes up, yes, we still can, as I'm trying to process the information. Um, get on a plane. I go to Dulles Airport, which is the worst airport in America that's not LAX, and uh, <laughs> watch Hillary Clinton's concession speech uh, in a news, in one of those like CNBC newsstands they have in airports where they have TVs. And in the a woman who I've never met but had recognized me from being on CNN the night before cried on my shoulder. It was very... <laughs> The whole thing was very dramatic. No one was happy. Uh, flew back to San Francisco, landed, got a text, remembered I had agreed to do this <laughs> panel. <laughs> and so I get to the panel, and the question, everyone's in shock. I'm in shock. And every the question everyone asks me is, well, what do we do? How do we get involved? So like, all these people, have, I'm sure that almost everyone at this panel discussion, they are young people in tech, probably voted, and I'm sure every one of them voted for Hillary Clinton. But they was they sort of saw like oh, I need to do more than vote. Particularly if I live in California, like what like I'm smart, I have skills. What can I do? And that's ultimately what we're trying to do is help help people get through this moment emotionally, helping ourselves get through it. But also like understand what matters and what people can do about it. So it is about engaging people is what we really want to do, and that's why we're. Uh, raising money for the Crooked 7, Crooked 8 if you count Devin Nunez. Uh, it's why we're doing a lot of things to register to vote. It's why I contributed a portion of every book pre-sold to Swing Left. Like This is a moment in time. We have been very gr- blessed and fortunate and surprised to have this platform. So how can we use it in a way that is consistent with our careers in politics? So we've talked a lot about different media outlets and, and how their importance has shifted over the even the last uh, decade since uh, you've been in the White House. Um, when you started, the, the strategy would be to have Obama say, if you're going to roll out something, you'd have Obama do an interview with, say, the New York Times and CBS. But then later, you start you know, realizing the, the power and the, and the influence, and the footprint of all these new types of uh, media outlets. And then, uh, like when the Obamacare uh, rollout was botched, um, not botched. to bring up, not to bring up, it was botched. It was botched. 20 million people have healthcare. We're fine now. Yeah, okay. All right. The, um, you had Obama go on uh, between two ferns with uh, Zach Galifianakis. I don't know if everybody remembers that. <laughs> Hilarious. Very funny. So today, let's say you are the White House communications director for 
Not not Trump. <laughs> no, no, not Trump. We won't, we won't do that to you. President Kamala Harris. Okay. Okay. You want to rule out a new immigration program. What four outlets do you go to? Well, I would certainly call those very clever dudes at Pot Save America. Yeah, okay. <laughs> they, they seem smart and charming. Um, well, I think no, but that's would, actually what do. Yeah, it's actually, actually it, they're, they're some people, some people move, do yeah. that. I mean, I, well, the way I would think about it is what the, the way we used to think about press and the way I think, frankly, too many Democrats still think about communications is my job is to tell reporters what we did. And then for reporters to tell the public what we did and that that would be sufficient. That probably was never super sufficient, certainly not since the invention of the Internet. And but it is certainly not sufficient now because of the way in which people get information has changed so much. Like when I went to work for Barack Obama, the Facebook was something only used by by college kids. Twitter was only used by tech people out here. The, the iPhone had not been invented. The idea that you could watch TV or video on your phone in any real way was mind boggling. It was like Jetson's shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, and you think about where we are right now. Right. And what, I, the way I think we have to start thinking about communications is about distribution. Right. So the way I would think about it is who are the people do I want to persuade? Like who are the people do I, do I want to know about this? Right. And then I want to know what messengers or outlets they find trustworthy. And so let's say I discover, based on research I've done or anecdotal information, that the certain group of voters I want find the San Francisco Chronicle to be the most compelling outlet. So I call you, right? And we give you a sit-down with President Kamala Harris or Vice President The Rock. I don't know. Whoever it is, right? <laughs> I don't know. Whoever, the right? Bay Area ticket thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Vice President Steph Curry. And you sit down <laughs> and you talk. And... And so now I have something in San Francisco Chronicle, Mm -hmm. but I can't count on the fact that everyone who I want to see it (laughs) will see it just because maybe not everyone may read every day or there's people just inundated with information so much that you may not, you may see it once and that may be enough. So I want it to, I want to get it to them, right? So maybe I have an outside political organization who is spending money to show that story that I know is that story from this outlet is compelling to show them that piece of message. Maybe I am, instead of engaging all my volunteers just to knock physical doors or call actual phones, which is something of great diminishing return in this day and age, because who answers their phone from an unknown number anymore? I certainly don't. Oh, no. um, I don't even answer from a known number. Who, exactly. Who talks on the phone? Yeah, yeah there's a whole generation. No one in this room talks on the phone. I left my phone in the other room because, as I told Joe, I can't have it with me and not check it. But <laughs> if I were to have it in my pocket right now, I'd show it to you. Is that every person now has the ability to contact hundreds of people and share information with that phone. So I would encourage my volunteers now to be like, share this story with 10 people, right? Or sh- and so I would spend so much more time thinking about the distribution of content. I... Like I have been the communications director on for two U.S. senators, two Senate campaigns, Democratic governors, a presidential campaign in the White House. I think we should retire the position of communications director as it currently exists because that is a it, that model is built entirely around a dramatically outdated model of how people get information. It is centered around traditional legacy media, and that is incredibly important, but that is not the end of the story anymore. It is about how you get that content in front of people. And that's the real job that I think Democrats are lacking at. And I think whoever wins, whether it is Kamala Harris, Steph Curry, The Rock, whoever it is, who gets to the White House, then 
are going to be the people who understand, who see that shift and build a new campaign model around that. Like I'm wearing a shirt also audio medium. I recognize, but the shirt says Beto for Senate and it is for Beto O'Rourke who's running for Senate in Texas against Ted Cruz. If you don't know Beto O'Rourke, you know Ted Cruz, so you know you should be for Beto. And he is someone who <laughs> is... a bumper sticker. Yeah, he's right. He is someone who is running an entirely different campaign. He released his first ad today, which I encourage everyone to check out. It's shot entirely on an iPhone. I saw that. You posted on Twitter. Yeah, That's and... Very interesting. And, like, he is just... Like, he, is, he like, Texas is very hard. Ted Cruz is going to have all the help he can possibly get from America and outside of it. And... Uh, he what, what, what does that mean that's just i mean you, <laughs> outside of america you're russia talking, russia, okay, russia. Okay, right, i yeah. mean we saw there's news today that the russians tried to hack claire mccaskill's campaign so this is coming people right two-factor authentication everyone and but beto is thinking about this his campaign is staff definitely thinking about it differently and i think it is a little bit like i mean i, I know we're in a we're in san francisco we're in that we're in a tech location right now. We're probably talking to a lot of tech people, but it really is about finding the inefficiencies in the old system and exploiting them. And the person who, the people who are willing to blow up the old models, maybe the ones who are successful, because that will be a comparative advantage against the 75 other Democrats running in 2020. Speaking of uh, old models and and sort of new models. And uh, let's talk about Facebook, which they, they had a kind of a bad week. Yeah. They've had a bad two years. (laughs) Lost $119 billion the other day. Um, lots of criticism for Facebook in, in your book. You write, quote, if, face, if fake news is the disease, Facebook is the carrier, unquote. Yet at the same time, you write that the next election battle will be fought on Facebook and that Democrats are losing the social media battle. A couple questions here. Would, first of all, how should Facebook change in the way they police themselves? And how do Democrats win the Facebook war? You sort of you start, start touching on it there. Sure. So let me take the second part first, because that's the easier question, and neither of those questions are easy. But the, the basic, there may be people, probably are people who work for Facebook in this room today. Uh, my apologies. Um, and, but what, the, like the shortest explanation for how Facebook became something the right exploited was the very simple um, Facebook rewards engagement, right? Like I think most people think you post something on Facebook, all of your friends see it, Mm -hmm. right? And probably everyone in this room knows that's not the case, but that is not the case. And so Facebook shows you the things that they believe you are most likely to engage with. Engage, like Facebook's algorithm is a black box, but in the most simplistic fashion, engagement means some combination of likes, shares, and comments. And so Breitbart were sort of the first people to figure this out, which is if you really want to get a lot of engagement, piss people off. So that's why Fox Breitbart writes things that say that are just horrible. They have headlines that are horribly offensive and anti-Semitic because they know it'll get a reaction, right? It'll People will, will they'll yell about it. They'll comment on it. They'll like outrage share it, like look at this terrible thing. And now Breitbart's being shown to more people, right? And so outrage has been the guiding principle of the Repu- of Republican Party politics since the moment Barack Obama stepped on the stage. It is, and they were able to exploit that. And Democrats were not paying attention, myself included. I'm just like checking Twitter, like all these people are crapping on Trump. I'm feeling good. And then you're not paying attention to what's happening on Facebook where 
either you have two things. You either have outrageous content that is shaping the conversation because it is going viral. And then you have these fake news stories. I talk about some of these in the, uh, and I mean fake news in like the actual sense of actual, actual news that is fake, right? Which are these stories that are like Pope endorses Trump, uh, ISIS calls for election of Hillary, FBI agent in charge of Clinton email investigation found dead in uh, apartment. And like, I consider myself as someone who was White House communications director and a admitted Twitter news addict to be in the upper percentile of news consumers. Like I should be pretty savvy. <laughs> and so in October of 2016, I'm flying uh, to the East Coast and I'm going to do uh, an event with John Favreau, like a Keeping a 1600 event back in the day from our old podcast. And we're kind of like going over the outline and I'm just like scrolling through Facebook, like checking up on my friend's kids, like seeing what's happening. And I see this news story that says FBI agent in charge of Clinton email investigation found dead in an apartment. And I was in my head, I'm like, I can't, I don't really know how to share anything, like to take a link off Facebook and give it to someone outside of Facebook. That's, they make that very challenging. So I'm like trying to figure out how to like open this in, in the internet browser. I'm going to send it to John be like, this is going to be like, I don't, I did not believe that the Clintons killed this person. Like there was the point of the article, but I was like, I knew what the right would do with it. And I was like, this is going to be a problem. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I've been to Denver. I've dealt with the Denver press. There's no such thing as the Colorado post. That's a <laughs> fake newspaper. And I was, and then you sort of see how people fall for that stuff. And then right. you're like, Oh my God, you see this? And everyone's saying it's going viral. So what Democrats have to do is we have to find ways to have to shape the conversation on Facebook in ways that are consistent with our values, right? I, we can't do what Breitbart and Trump do. We can't, we can't have a strategy that's a paler shade of orange, if you will. It has to be, that joke always takes like two seconds. <laughs> yes, that's, that's, it's just, it's, get, it's rippling in that. That's right. You the, can, the, you the can hear it. is rippling. You can yeah, hear it. The, people in the microphone, listening to the podcast may not hear it, but it was, it killed in the room. And, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, but you, so we have to find ways to, and we have to give tools to our supporters to push back on these things. Yeah, there's, there's, there's apps and there's, there's out there that, that kind of can sift through that stuff, but nothing's really taken off like fact checking apps. And, and I, th and, I think and the news would check your source and all that stuff. I think the way it's going to, it's not going to be some third party entity doing it. It is going to be a campaign or a progressive movement leveraging its engaged supporters to do it for them. Right? Like we do, I, I encourage everyone to canvas. I encourage everyone to phone bank. But the entire organizing model of the Democratic Party is built offline, right? It, we use online to organize people to do things offline. We need to use online to organize people to do things online. It is efficient. It is smart. And it is where the conversation is happening. It is what trends on Twitter determines what is talked about off Twitter. What happens on Facebook, like you have to understand, think about people's Facebook experience, right? And Facebook is the internet for old people. It is. It just, I mean, it is, it is how they are getting, many of them are getting their news. And people, now that it's mobile, right, people are sitting there, like they're sitting in the grocery line waiting to get through, and they're just scrolling through their phone, and they're just seeing the headlines. And we've done studies, uh, when I worked for Obama, looking at how, how that, that experience affected people. And you, if you see lots of negative things, like no one clicks on the headline, they just see it, right? It's like... <clears throat> It's like friends' graduation, neighbors got a cute kid, it's 12 people's birthdays, ISIS endorsed Hillary, you know, <laughs> and it's just like, and like, 
So how do we get in that conversation? How do we disrupt that conversation? I don't have all the answers to it, but it has to be the main thing that we're thinking about. So the second part of the question is, what does Facebook do? Facebook has a real question I think it has to ask itself, right? And I think that question is brought to the forefront by the reaction of the market today, right? So you take, Facebook has been beat up for the last few days, in particular around the question of whether they should ban InfoWars. And InfoWars being the Alex Jones's uh, con- website, which is conspiracy theories, most famous for, among other things, um, arguing, harassing the parents of the children killed at Sandy Hook, saying that that was a hoax, and that they were child actors. This is disgusting stuff, right? And Facebook's held a press event in New York. They brought everyone in. They said, here's our plan to fight fake news. Oliver Darcy from CNN, very smart guy, raises his hand and says, well, what are you doing about InfoWars, which is famous for having fake news. And they said, are you banning them? They're like, no, we don't ban people for saying explicitly false things. And so, Oliver, so then the press, a lot of smart reports in the room are like, well, what does that mean? And they sort of, it becomes a thing. And then Facebook's like, well, we think they have a right. And to free speech or participation, whatever right, else. Right. And they say, but we're not banning them. We are demoting their posts so fewer people see them. So now, just as a communication... But, but we don't know what that algorithm yeah, is. Yeah, we don't know what it means. We just so know we that they are that saying means. that fewer yeah. people see them because of we have determined that this is false, so we're going to show it to fewer people. So here's the problem, which is... Like you can have, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can either say we are a neutral platform and everyone can do what they want to do, and like we, you can't. There will have certain community guidelines, like you can't post nudity or you can't have some kind of profanity or you can't threaten violence. But in general, we're going to let you do what you want to do, and we're neutral, and we'll let the marketplace figure it out. We'll let readers, or you can say we're going to clean up the conversation, and you can't do both. And I think. Uh, Alex Stamos, I think was the guy's name, who was an uh, executive at Facebook, wrote an exit memo. And in it, he urged Facebook to pick a side. Right. And, and I but think they don't, want, they don't want to limit their, their business. But this is the problem. Well, that, I, that is the question. I think it is, it, this is a very complicated question, and it's very hard to solve. And I think they are doing a lot of things on the side of trying to reduce the influence of outside actors like Russian bots and stuff like that. But the problem with Trump is it has shifted the Overton window where it is progressive and then racist and crazy. And like prior to Trump, you would take, you know, these white supremacists and you would say, we have decided as a society that that is, we're not going to give that a forum, right? That would not be on Twitter. They would not get a blue check mark. They would not, they would not, where Facebook is not going to monetize their presence. But now that Trump represents one side of our polarized political discussion and he represents these points of view, it is seen as, like, think about this. It is seen as anti-conservative or anti-Republican to ban Alex Jones. That's crazy. Alex Jones likes Republicans. He likes Donald Trump. Donald Trump likes Ale- likes Alex Jones. He's been but on the show. But it's not the flip side of... Alex Jones is not the flip side of liberal thinking. It's not like we have the nation, we have Pod Save America, and we have the Proud Boys who marched in Charlottesville. And I think that is the problem is that in this search for balance, like Facebook, like a lot of media, has been very influenced by this bad faith critique of the right, saying that they are biased against conservatives. And they bend over. Twitter has made some of the similar things. They bend over backwards to avoid it. And they give in to bad faith arguments and then make mistakes. I think that you can very easily make a case that we are balanced. We're going to let 
Ben Shapiro be on the be on the platform. We're going to let the like the Weekly Standard. We're going to let these other conservative outlets certainly be on the platform, even if we disagree with what they say. But we're not going to let the guy who says the Sandy Hook Matt killings were fake. We're going to kick that guy off the platform. He is a, like I don't. Maybe they have a uh, points out the Constitution does not mention Facebook. Like he he did like he does not, does not have a constitutional right to be on Facebook. He. He has a constitutional right to say what he wants to say, and he can do that. He can start his own website. He doesn't have to be on Facebook or on Twitter or anything else. And I think people are going to just have to pick a side here. And it's not liberal or Republican or liberal conservative, Republican or Democrat. It is moral and immoral, racist and non-racist. And it is okay to take a stand against Like, we had agreed as a society, at least we'd try. Like, we would maybe, we weren't great about it, but we'd say, there are certain behavior that will get you kicked out of polite society. Get you like Trent Lott made a civil war reference about the South winds of a war in the early two thousands. He was the leader of the Republican party. They kicked him out in like five minutes. Right. And that like, that was the view is like, we will not have people in our party who talk like this, but now Trump has shifted that window that it, we have to have people in that, in our party who say that we have to allow people in because we have to be balanced. And that's a huge Strategic mistake, a, in my view. A huge shift. Um, we're going to go on to these questions in, in a second. One, one I wanted to get to, to before this, uh, let's talk uh, 2020, uh, potential 2020 Democratic candidates. Um, is anyone so, here running? Because <laughs> <laughs> you got a shot, trust yes, me. Yeah. There's, there certainly is a big and growing field. Okay, the, the, you, a lot of the, the potentials, the 2020 crew, they come on the pod to kiss the ring. Uh, the <laughs> That's how we like to think about it, yes. yes. Um, remotely kissing your ring in San Francisco. The, um, who, Favreau likes to talk about, said he likes candidates who talk like a human. Which of the folks you've interacted with thus far talk like a human? <laughs> that is a very clever way to get me to weigh in on who the best 2020 candidate is. So it was very smart. I see what you're doing here. The cards are pretty far up your sleeve, but I can see them. Um, I Here is my how I'm approaching 2020, which is I approached 2016 like I knew the answers. And as it turns out, I didn't. And, and I think the we have to recognize that traditional definite, I recognize two things, right? That the history, both past recent, recent past and distant, more distant past of Washington, the media pundits, podcasters, un guessing what the electorate wants is wrong. It's a, it's a very bad history of being right, right? right? right. Like people, people forget about this. Most people thought Barack Obama had no chance to beat Hillary Clinton. And if he got nominated, the argument was, he would get his ass kicked by John McCain because who would po what country would possibly elect uh, an African-American president two years removed from the Illinois State Senate named Barack Hussein Obama while we're at war in Iraq and Afghanistan? And he got 53 percent of the vote and 365 electoral votes. So apparently those people were wrong. And everyone said that Hillary Clinton was certain myself included was certain to win the presidency that Bernie Sanders had no shot in that primary. That was wrong. Donald Trump had no shot. That was wrong. So I want to go into this with some sort of humility. Sure. Second thing is um, the, that campaigns are a match between the person and the moment. And right, sitting here right now, we don't know what the moment's going to be 
in the spring of 2020 when voters are going, when the California primary is, the Iowa caucuses, all of that. Like in... But just just for now, just yeah. for like we just from the interaction. Yeah. Okay, yeah. this is a very extended dodge you're doing. Right, yeah. Okay, but it's very, it's very it's well spoken. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is, it's very well spoken. You're yeah. running out the clock on us yeah. here. Uh, so, but who who do you, who talks like a human being? Who comes on? They like, oh, this I can actually have a conversation with this person. I think this is a very challenging question to answer. Like. I will say we had a very nice time with Kamala Harris in San Francisco. Yes, yes. She on came on live shows. Right. She used the F word, which yeah. you could have seen yes. the look on wow. her very talented communications director when she did that from the side of the stage. Yeah. It was worth the price of admission for me, at least. Um, <laughs> I think uh, that I think we'll just stick with California for a sec. I think Eric Garcetti is someone mm-hmm. who was also appeared at a live show. I, there's a trend here uh, who was. <laughs> Excellent and very talented, and I think is much slept upon by uh, sort of political prognosticators. And because part of it is like, how could the mayor of coastal elite LA win the presidency? Well, it's like, how could a racist reality star from New York with a gold toilet win the presidency? Like, yes. anything is possible, people. <laughs> we don't know what electability means. And so I kind of want to say, like, Elizabeth Warren has been on the podcast like four times. She's been wow. excellent. She's That's very a lot powerful. of ring kissing. Yeah, she, she's, she's a very well-in-demand podcast guest. I'm from, I'm from the great state of Delaware. Joe Biden has been my... Uh, up, up until January 2017, he'd been the sen- my senator, my vice president, my entire life, and I'm 43. So that tells you how long he's been in office, and as a friend, and someone I have the most, the utmost affection for, and he is as good a human being as walks this planet, and would be very interesting. No one should. He's got to run, though, do you? I think he might. I think he might. Here is someone. Here I'll give you a couple of people who are less talked about that yes. I think I find to be very interesting. Eric Garcetti being one. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to see Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, run. <clears throat> he is someone who was very close personally with President Obama. He did a lot of campaigning for us. I think he is one of the most thoughtful uh, politicians we have out there. He is one hell of a speaker. It was always fun to see him and Obama speak at the same rally because they got pretty competitive with each other, really brought out the best in both of them because uh, no, neither one of them wanted to be outshined by the other. Um, and I think he is someone who has a very uplifting, unifying message. And I think there's something very interesting about like you're going to, whoever is the nominee in 2020 would be very tough with Trump. Mm-hmm. But I think that Trump wants you to think America is in the toilet and only he can save it. But anyone to think that politics is this dark, divided thing. But if there, we maybe we have someone who can speak to our better, better angels, can say that America can and should be better than the Trump show. And I think Duvall has a very interesting perspective there. I think uh, that Mayor Mitch Landrew from New Orleans, New Orleans is a really interesting guy, really sort of worth looking into. Um, I know how many people pay attention to it. Like we all know Kamala Harris right here. If I was doing this in New York, I'd probably bring her name up as someone who was less well-known nationally. I think Kirsten Gillibrand is very interesting. And then the last person who I think probably won't run hasn't no, I mean, none of these people have told me they're running or not running. Um, and I have asked in some cases, but um, I think Chris Murphy, a Senator from Connecticut, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, who is a, he came, he was elected right even before he was elected, but not sworn in yet when Sandy Hook happened. And he has been one of our fiercest, bravest advocates for gun safety uh, gun control in this country. And he talks like a human and is a real human and is passionate. And so there's a whole bunch of really interesting people. My caveat to all of this is in 2006. So after, uh, 
Kerry lost in 2004. The consensus of all the people in politics was the only way Democrats are going to win is if we, like, we lost because we nominated this elitist windsurfing guy from liberal Boston. <laughs> and so what we have to do is we need a man of the people. And it was definitely man. Like we need a man of the people who is a gov is someone from a red state who can win moderates. Like that's what we need. And I was working <laughs> for a guy named Evan by who was looked like a president. He had been a rising star for a long time. He's from Indiana, one red Indiana many times. People were really interested in Mark Warner at the time. He's the governor of Virginia. Mm, one, what we thought, we thought Virginia was a very red state back then. He won. These are people we want. And at that time, uh, two journalists, uh, John Harris of Politico, now of Politico, and Mark Halperin, now of Nowhere, um, wrote <laughs> a book called The Way to Win. And it was about how, like, two people who'd covered, like, 15 combined presidential commands, how you win an election. And, it talk, like, in the run-up to the, the thing of the 2008 election, and if you were to get that book on your digital book reading uh, app of choice, for instance, uh, <laughs> and you were to do a search, you would not, the two, here's two words you would not find in that book. Barack and Obama. Wow. And so I say all of that to say, sitting here right now, we just don't know. We, can, we may be able to identify who the people are who are running, but we're not going to know what the moment is. So you can't figure out the marriages. And, and also, as talented as someone seems at a Pod Save America show, for instance, or on the campaign trail for Senate or out there in Iowa campaigning, campaigning for some state senator who they have a passionate interest in, um, is different than running from president. My friend and former colleague, David Axelrod, always says that a presidential campaign is an MRI of the soul because it is about you, right? And people, we think of, our, we think of presidents as more than just the person who's going to run the government. They're the head of government and the head of state in this country. And you just don't know how good people are going to be at, be at the prospect of running president because what it really means is you have to go into a room like this because people will be coming to California to campaign this time. You will be in a living room in Iowa or a VFW hall in New Hampshire. And you're going to stand in front of a group of people as skeptical as this group. And you're going to say, I have scanned the waterfront of the 300 million Americans. And I have decided that the person best suited for the job of president is me. And, and that is like a hard argument to make. And a lot of people melt at that moment and they don't have a real good answer for why they're that person. And so we'll see. I think Kamala Harris has all uh, has some real opportunities, and I could chart out a path where she could win the nomination pretty clearly. Uh, but we just won't know until she, A, decides to run, if that's what she wants to do, and then B, goes in front of the voters and says, here's why I want to lead the country. Not why I want to be one of 100 senators or one of California's two senators, but why I want to be the one person, the person who decides whether we go to war or not, the person who makes those big decisions. And... We just don't know. People doubted Barack Obama could do it, and he could. And people doubted Bernie Sanders could do it, and he could. And so we'll see. It's going to be – I'm very excited to see it, and I think a big, robust debate about policy, about direction and message is going to ultimately be very good for the party. All right. Let's go to your questions. I saw, uh, Way in the back. That's a hand I saw shoot up first. Hi. Um, so my question for you is, I'm a California native, and I moved to the South a week before the election, 2016, and being a progressive in the South, I felt like a black sheep. Now that I'm back here in the Bay Area, I'm sure there's a lot of conservatives and Republicans that feel the same way. So my question for you is, how do we be more 
incorporating and have better conversations with people who think differently than us in the Bay Area so we don't, feel, we don't isolate other, other, other mindsets? So I'd say a couple things about that, which is one, my first, my first suggestion would be to listen, right? Try to find like why, like, like understand their position, right? Don't just presume that it is like if they are a Trump supporter, that is simply the product of them being racist. Cause it like Trump is a racist. Many people who work for Trump are racist. Some of his supporters are racist, but most of the people who voted for him are not right. And, or, or are, it has a much, much more nuanced conversation. Than that. So I first would be to listen. Second would be, I know this seems hard and this seems counterproductive to someone who has a political podcast and wrote a political book, but all of our conversations don't have to be about politics, right? Are there other things we can talk to people about, right? And where we can talk about sports, we could talk about life, we talk about books, non-political books. Um, and, and then the other thing is, some, now, you, now you get into the political conversation. Now you're, you're arguing with them, if you're arguing, right? And people ask us all the time, how do, you, how do I convince my uncle, my Trump-supporting uncle, to not support Trump? And the answer is, you may not be able to. That just You may have to agree to disagree on that fact. But if you don't like your Trump-supporting uncle, what we encourage people to do is go out and find two friends who wouldn't otherwise vote, register them to vote, and make sure they turn out to vote for a Democrat and nullify your uncle's vote. <laughs> More questions for Dan with the mustache and the red shirt. Question is, um, how do we get people to turn out who are infrequent voters in the midterms that are coming up in November? This is ultimately a question of organizing, right? It is about campaigns, identifying those voters and reaching out to them through door knocks, phone calls, texts, emails, all of those things. And it is hard work. It is about five times as hard to get a non-voter to vote as it is to get someone who traditionally votes to do it, right? To get, like the argument being it's harder to get someone who doesn't vote to vote than it is to um, persuade someone who normally votes to vote for your side. Thing is, a, both are very hard, and B, we have to do both if we're going to win. And so the, when you have the conversation, now it is, so you've identified the person. How do you convince them to do it? My suggestion here always is to figure out the thing they care about most, right? Is it education policy? Is it crime? Is it climate change? Is it money and politics? Because here's the thing I'm pretty sure of. They care about something. And whatever that something is, Donald Trump is screwing it up in some way. So <laughs> like you had, like there is an argument to be made to that. And the, you know, and I think there are some examples like in Virginia, we are going to get Medicaid expansion in Virginia. So Virginia will be able to expand Medicaid and give healthcare to tens of thousands of Virginians. And that will be decided by one vote, not one vote in the house of representatives, but one actual vote. One person's vote is why that is possible because it tipped a district, and so every one of every one vote matters. And the the long term argument, and this is the lesson two thousand sixteen, is that citizenship is a full time job. It is not tune in when you want. It is not uh, I'll just vote and do nothing else. Like if we want to avoid that, is how Trump won. Trump won is we got complacent. All of us. Barack Obama won. A lot of people in this room are. So seem to be of an age where you probably have spent most from the time you were a teenager 
Barack Obama was president and then Hillary was obviously going to win. You probably voted. Otherwise, I suspect you wouldn't be here. Um, but that's it. But if we want, like, we can make, the, like, that is the message of the book, is that we can make this this country look like a politics that Obama talked about, inclusive, hopeful, unifying, diverse. But that takes work. And we have to do the work. And so that it means we have to turn all the people out to vote. We, every one of us has to, like, we have agency. We can volunteer for Swing Left. We can text for... Uh, we can raise money for people. We can give five dollars. We have it. Do all the things that are in our power to do. And if we do those things, we can do it. But it is ultimately centers around getting these people, getting people to vote, because there are more people who agree who who agree with how I I feel, and I think most people in the room feel, than feel the other way. They just aren't turning out enough. Back uh, right there. Hi, um, I'm curious what you think about Donald Trump's Twitter account. I get the sense, based on the timing and the typos that he is mostly doing himself. Like, I think you can sort of tell based on the number of polysyllabic words, whether Trump did it or a staffer did it. Um, really the random capitalizations, the weird parentheses, which I put weird parentheses in my book, so I don't have a problem with weird parentheses, but, um, very funny footnotes in your book. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I encourage everyone to check out the footnotes. Um, the, I think it has been a net positive for him if you understand what Trump wants to do, if Trump wants to do is he want he Trump is our first president who is not trying to speak to the whole country. Trump is speaking only to his voters. His goal is to keep as many of his voters on his side as possible. And he didn't care about anything else. And so from that, if you, if you're willing to do that and you want willing to engage in propaganda to do it, then Twitter is a great tool for that. And he has done it well. Now, I also read a story in the New York Times today that Mueller was looking at Trump's tweets to see if in the, within them was evidence of obstruction of justice. So if we are living in a Matrix-style version of a Shakespearean tragedy, this would be how Trump goes down. <laughs> okay. Uh, right here in the front. With the wake of the Janus decision, what do you see? Uh, the question is about the Janus the decision, which we're going to organize labor, and, and it's about what how can the Democratic Party work with organized labor? Okay. I think this is a the Janus decision was a Supreme Court decision that gutted public unions and part of a legislative, judicial, financial strategy of Republicans to cripple unions because it cripples political power for Democrats in their view, but also most importantly to the billionaires who fund the Republican Party, it makes it easier for them to give fewer benefits and lower wages to American workers. And I think the Democrats have to, we need a new strategy for how we not just work with organized labor, because we should continue to do that, but how we solidify the role of organized labor in this country. So there's legislation called card check, which would make it easier for unions to organize. And that is something that we talked about passing the Obama administration. I wish we had, we were unable to get the 60 Democrats you needed to do it, to get it done. But I think the next time the Democrats have control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency, they should sign card check, which could be in 2021, frankly. Uh, they should pass card check right away. I think we should, at a state level where we have governorships and state legislatures, start undoing right-to-work laws that have been passed, putting in uh, legislation to strengthen unions. And this is not like... It is good for the Democratic Party if because organized labor is often sort of our they fund a lot of campaigns and they are organizing muscle. They're often ones knocking doors, stuff like that. But more importantly, the 
the sort of the diminishment and destruction of collective bargaining rights for workers are one of the things that have eroded the middle class, eroded middle class prosperity and committed and moved us towards a much more economically, economic inequality. And so it is the right thing to do both politically, but also for our values is to strengthen unions because workers need more rights. And so a workers' rights agenda needs to be a part. I hope it's a big discussion in the 2006, 2020 elections as people come up with proposals about how they would do that. It's going to take a lot of work to undo the damage that's been done. Right here in the front. The question, just to repeat the question, is, is there a guilt? Do, do media companies, you're asking if, you, if media companies feel a guilt in not supporting or giving more coverage or responsibility for do for do media companies uh, feel a responsibility for the results of the election? I think you had the way to th to think like it's always hard in an election decided by eighty thousand votes over three states to say what is the thing right that led to this. So in an election that close, everything is responsible in some way, shape, or form. Whether it's obviously Russian hacking, uh, the Jim Comey's decision to unburden himself weeks before the election are all things that, <laughs> um, you know, decisions not to visit states, uh, media coverage, the coverage of Hillary Clinton's emails, all of those things led to help create a world where this nightmare happened. I think it is a very fair criticism of media outlets, television outlets in particular, that during the primaries, they gave... Donald Trump too much coverage and Bernie Sanders not enough coverage. And I think there were two separate reasons for that. Donald Trump was good for ratings. And media outlets are businesses. They are in the business of ratings. The better their ratings, the higher, the higher rates they can sell their commercials for. And in a tough environment, they can pay their people more or not fire their people. And so, you know, you always, I always wonder in these situations like, is it the media's job to like force feed spinach to the American people or is the American people's job to want to eat spinach, right? Because it wasn't just Republicans who were turning to see Trump. We were all watching the horror show at the same time. And, we, and it was, they thought it was fine because they thought he wouldn't win, right? And so it's like, we're just going to play around with this Yahoo. He's going, and I, I speak, I don't, I had no, I have no involvement in CNN's news decisions. So I just speak sort of broadly about the media here. It's like he's going to be out there. He's going to say crazy things. And eventually, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, or John Kasich is going to be the Republican nominee and return to normal. In the case of Bernie Sanders, the media decided that Hillary Clinton was going to win, and Bernie Sanders had no chance. And so they covered Hillary Clinton like she was the, the Democratic nominee from the very beginning. And that was unfair to Bernie Sanders and also unfair to Hillary Clinton because she received a level of scrutiny that as if she would basically they didn't even cover it like... Let me take that back. They covered Hillary Clinton like she was president from the day she announced because they believed she was going to win. So, and they never, and this was, you can look at this in the Trump coverage too, not just TV, but everything else is the press never thought Trump was going to win. So they didn't, they weren't vetting hit. Like there were lots of good stories about it, but the scrutiny was not the same as Hillary because they were giving Hillary this, the, the right, like it, the level of scrutiny for Hillary was the level of scrutiny you give the president. The president should get as annoying as it was to me when I worked there, president should be scrutinized. And, Every, everyone was victim of not understanding the political forces. Jim Comey put out his letter because he thought Hillary was definitely going to win. And so therefore she was president. Therefore he, he was going to be, she was gonna be president. Therefore he was going to be serving in a world where she was the, his boss and congressional Republicans are going to be coming after him. So we had to cover himself. And so I think everyone, I think there was certainly a responsibility there. I, 
after every election, we all look back and we say, man, the press screwed that up. What lessons can we learn? And sometimes they learn those lessons. Sometimes they learn those lessons for like two minutes and then forget them. And so we'll see how this plays itself out going forward. All right. I think that is, I'm getting the silence. That is all the time we have today. Thank you all for being here. Dan, thanks for being here. And thank thanks you guys for being for coming. All poli- yeah. It's all political. I'd like to thank Dan Pfeiffer for being on the podcast today. And I'd like to thank Scribd for inviting me to interview them in their lovely headquarters and for their head and for their technical help. And of course, I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman for masterfully producing this podcast. Yes, this podcast was produced by royalty. And remember, no matter if you've worked in the White House or you've worked in the outhouse, it's all political. Mm-hmm.